0: Hey, what's up everyone? Thanks for checking out another episode of Reppin, a place where we talk all things representation. We've got guests from all backgrounds and all different professions. And today we have someone great with us. She comes from the world of public relations. She is the founder of The Make Agency, a global PR firm. Her clientele are high-profile organizations, organizations like the UN, UNICEF, to the BBC, and MTV. Her focus is human rights and social justice issues. And get this, on her own personal time, she's raising money, buying supplies, and driving down to the border herself to help families. So she's going to have some really amazing experiences to share. Our guest today is Mekdis Keshavariz. Can you tell people a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background and where you're from.
1: Sure, my name is Mahdi Keshevaz. I am an Iranian woman that was born in Iran and shortly thereafter moved to Seattle and, and grew up in an era that was called grunge. And so I started my life in the punk rock world and punk rock community and was lucky enough to, to be a part of some really amazing stuff in the '90s. Before I moved to New York in the late '90s, to become a diplomat was my goal, and I ended up working for Secretary General Kofi Annan's office. Um, and doing a lot of work around an organization called the Hague Appeal for Peace and getting recruited from that to start PR, a world that I didn't think I was going to be a part of and that wasn't for me, but that I have been in for now a lot of years, um, and for, <laughs> for the past 12 of which I run my own company that's called The Make Agency that focuses on social justice, human rights-related PR causes.
0: Wow, that's quite a resume. How did you go from grunge to Kofi Annan's office? <laughs>
1: I think people ask me this all of the time, but it was such a natural transition for me that it didn't seem strange. And the moment I will tell you that it felt strange or that maybe things were awry is that we were in The Hague and something was going on and there was some security issue and he asked his security to please bring me the girl with the purple hair. And I was like, see, this is why it's a natural thing for me to be working here. He remembers me because... (laughs) Wait, you had purple hair? I did have purple hair at the time. I had not fully purple, but like enough that he, it was recognizably purple and awesome. it wasn't done at the UN. And so, so I think the reason it was a natural thing, it was, I feel that for me, it was always a part of politics. You know, I think punk, has always really informed the stuff that I do, that kind of DIY ethic, first and foremost, um, the kind of not asking for permission, a lot of times and feeling empowered enough to do something and to do it for the people. Something about punk has always informed that for me. And I think that it was a natural partly into a p- political kind of life.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you stop to think about it, it does make sense. Punk really is a response to rules. At first glance, you're like, how did you go from Seattle grunge to Kofi Annan's yeah. office? That's crazy. You know, when
1: you're in it, I, I, I people, it's truly one of the things that people have a hard time wrapping their head <laughs> around for me. But I'll say time and time again, that community has given me a home and support, you know, and th- as much as my own community has. So I, it's, it's difficult as it's been, but it's really, it's a natural part of it. That's an incredible <laughs> background. Those punk rock kids will know what I'm talking about. When did you come to the U.S. from Iran? When everyone else did in the in the late 70s. I think I think our date is December 28, 1979, something like that.
0: When you first came here, what was that transition like? Because you I mean, it was in the early 70s. So there was even less diversity and representation at that particular point. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you first came from Iran to the States?
1: You know, I was very young, Evelyn, but I will tell you that the, the, the memories aren't great ones okay. in that way. When we first came to the U.S., um, we went to Oklahoma, which wasn't the place to be for those who don't have a history lesson. The Iranian revolution happened, and it was especially uh, chaotic around the, their involvement of the U.S. and actions that the Iranians inside Iran took against the U.S. embassy. And choosing to go to the, the south um, was a pretty challenging choice for my parents. So we went there because we had a family there and my parents went to university um, at the University of Oklahoma. But my memories were of a lot of discrimination, a lot of um, kind of trying to hide or seeing my parents kind of hide our identity. We didn't speak Spanish, but we were happy to be Mexican. And even within the preschool space, um, being singled out time and again. And and so it's a very... They're rough memories, you know, they're they're, they're not, um, it wasn't all terrible, but they certainly weren't ones where people are like, oh, yeah, we came and I learned all these things. It was, uh, yes, we came, we had to learn all these things. But at the same time, it was a constant attempt at justifying that we are, you know, human beings and we get, we should be treated fairly. Also, though, on the positive side, helped me inform the kind of person I want to be and and how I look at others and how I look at the immigrant experience in this country.
0: I wanted to go back to when you were telling us about how you had to hide your identity as a young child, regardless of whatever your background is, those are important developmental years, um, which is already hard enough. But then you had this extra layer of trying to consciously hide your background. That must have been super hard. How did that affect you?
1: I honestly have so many of these stories, and I'm indebted to my parents who really didn't give me space to kind of create a lot of self-shame. One thing that Iranians have that I think gives us an advantage as as an immigrant population is we have a deep, deep sense of entitlement to many things. So our vast history, the culture, the music, the contributions and things that we've made, I was really lucky in that my family's always made um, space for that in our household, Um, and it gave me a lot of strength, but to give you an example of a time that it was a challenge for Um, in the sixth grade, I, I had transitioned. We'd moved up to Seattle by then, and we were living in um, in an apartment. And I was ostracized uh, by my school community for, for numerous reasons, stupid reasons um, that just uh, junior high kids can really come up for for themselves um, of, of around material us having a, a nicer car than I did was was they couldn't understand why an immigrant family would have a nicer car.
0: Wait a second. Wait. This is a classic story of haves versus have-nots, but in this case, you having nice things actually made you more of
1: a target? My dad bought an old Mercedes. That was too much for some of the fellow students. Um, I can't believe I'm telling this story, but I got ostracized, like enough that I ultimately changed schools. But the part that was an interesting moment in that was that um, there was an article in the school paper. And the article in the school paper said that Iranians should be blown off the face of the earth. That was actually the, the line that was in it. And in combination with kind of being targeted and bullied in the school, and then this article coming up I remember going home in the sixth grade and just weeping my eyes out being like I can't go back there I hate it I can't hang like this is not okay and look at what they're saying how am I supposed to go back there they want to blow me off the face of the earth they bully me at lunch like this this, not the other thing and my dad like took the letter and he read it and he was like yeah, you know, that's pretty bad. So what are you gonna do? I was like, what do you mean what I'm gonna do? He was like, What you gotta do? You gotta you gotta write a response. You can't just let that lie. And I was like, I can't write a response. He was like, I will do you one favor. I will call the school and inform them that they must print the response, but you will write that response all on your own in the full thing. So he made me sit down and write like a full response, which was really like the first time I sat down and kind of addressed racism as it was being. And and I remember very clearly my dad calling the school, the principal and saying, listen, this is not okay. I'm not going to argue with you, but you will be giving my daughter a space to tell these people where, to put it, you know, she will print it as she writes it, which you did. They didn't help me. They, you know, they read it, you know, and they were like, okay, that's, that's fine. But it was one of those moments where it was a terrible moment and a painful moment. But I think the teaching moment out of it came out to say that, oh, wait, I don't just come home and cry about it. I have to do something and time and time again in life. Um, my parents really were like, no, you, you, you get to be entitled to having a voice. You get to be entitled to having a response. And I, I, I feel like I built a career off of that.
0: (laughs) You absolutely did. I mean, being bullied is awful, but then seeing this terrible headline in a school paper, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. Um, so you'd think that your father would like storm down to school, talk to the teachers and principals. But instead, his response was a little bit unexpected, right? Sure.
1: I mean, I credit my father. He's the first feminist I ever met. He was very much like, you should do this. You know, what's funny is that I think about what I would do, as we're talking now, about what I would do if it were my son who came in and did that. And I don't know that I would do anything much different than that
0: either. I mean, you really got to credit your dad. Um, so when you had to sit down to write that response, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like?
1: I was already mad. Like when you get bullied, I really understand that when someone treats you unfairly and you know, you get mad. And I think it's an okay anger to get mad. It feeds us in many ways, that kind of anger and fury and the hurt, you know. I think where we all often, often time and again fail is that being able to channel it into something.
0: Something positive. And realizing it
1: doesn't have to be a violent challenge. I think it was the first time sitting down I was like, oh, you know what? These guys may be treating you this way, but my words can really be stronger than theirs. I'll show them. That was my thing. And I wasn't, not like I was like some prolific writer or anything like that. It was just that I sat down and I realized like, oh wait, if I put this pen to paper, I can put them in their place. And there was something empowering about that because yeah. it becomes a matter of record, right? And yeah. I realized that it's a matter of record that you wrote something horrible and racist. And then it's a matter of record that I didn't take it. That I put something in response. And I think there's value to that because when you look back, you know, here I am, you know, 20, 30 years later, remembering that moment and remembering the actions, but still seeing that as hard as it was, it built me as a yeah. person. Too. Yeah.
0: So you really had a choice at that moment. You could have crumbled from it, but instead you responded to it. And even going a step further, it's not just responding. You had to figure out what to say and how to say it. So I know it's been a long time, but do you remember vaguely what you wrote?
1: I don't remember, truthfully, what my response exactly was, but I can tell you that I am confident that it would have involved some sort of a history lesson, some sort of a reminder about nonviolence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that entitlement comes through, you know, and I think that kind of knowing that I had centuries of Iranian empire and literature and poetry and whichever um, behind me made me not immune, but kind of non-responsive, I guess, in a way to that kind of abuse, you know. And I think it was also that I found so much solidarity at times growing up with different minority communities. You know, at the time, Seattle was a very homogenous place to to be living. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really big deal for me um, to kind of be targeted in that way because there was nowhere to turn but I knew that the other kids who maybe felt that way the black kids or the Latino kids at the time that there was a space for me amongst them and I and I think that's part of why for me also has like since then minority rights and and that has also been something I identify with pretty deeply because the only other people who felt that way, in, you know, in terms of the kids, that they were other minority kids.
0: So. Did that article take you a long time to write or did it just sort of pour out of you?
1: It came out, Evelyn. I think I do remember because when you're mad, it comes out. You've got a lot to say, you know, yeah. you don't want to stutter over your words. You could have a minute to think about it. It's the power of the, the pen for all of us.
0: So hats off to your father for really kind of making that such a turning point because it could have come out a very different way, right?
1: It could have, I think, come in a very different way if they said, "Okay, don't say anything, don't rock the boat, just keep it to yourself and and pep talk me at home. That would have been one approach, but I think it would have manifested in a shame that I am grateful they didn't.
0: I feel like that this story and this experience has really sort of been a very defining moment for you. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it's funny because I've actually, I very, you have to be quite close to me to have heard this story because it was a painful one, you of know, course, yeah. um, I ultimately did change schools for a myriad of reasons, but that was really front and center. It definitely is one of those touch point moments in your life.
0: So empowering though, because it's definitely shaped you for sure. And it seems like it, you've really drawn strength from that.
3: and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, when you were in that time period, not necessarily this example, but did you have friends in your neighborhood or um, your community or even on television that you could actually look to and be like, hey, you know, I kind of get you, you get me. Um, I know that you had mentioned, you know, African-American kids and Latinos, but did you have anyone that you could directly relate to that was in your age group in
1: your neighborhood? The the fact is, Evelyn, I, I did have a cousin who was in the school with me, but she passed as white. She had blonder hair and blonder. And so there was no allyship in that realm, which was a very... Uh, challenging thing. So that where do I look to? Honestly, I feel like Janet Jackson really helped me with this Janet. That's like, amazing. <laughs> Wait, how did Janet Jackson help you? <laughs> right. I was out of something but like that that album of like rhythm and control and you know you realize like oh there is some badassery to be had so in right. that way like as you're talking to me i'm like what was it around that time but like musically or whatever because music has always been kind of a, a a place to hide and a place to get motivation and kind of hyped from and strength and at the time i think it was janet honestly um, no yeah.
0: no no that's not anything to laugh at that album was awesome And, you know, we connect with music in a million different ways, but it doesn't sound like you had anyone in your life at the time that you could really connect with. Um, And I don't even think you had anyone in media to look to, right?
1: No, not at the time. I, I was, I'm really just racking my brain being like, who could it be? I remember like desperately wanting Paula Abdul to be Muslim. I was like, her last name is Abdul. Come on. Like, give me this. You know? <laughs> Can it be her? Um, so you it, just desperately looking for someone, someone Brown, someone Muslim, someone mm-hmm. Middle Eastern, someone, anything that kind of could be you like, you know, it, it, you looked at, I was like people who i used to think about who's the boss you know um who was leah Dramini, something like that um, I Remini. Remini, that's her name um she there was some side show that she was on, on off of who's the boss that was about yes. young girls models, models or something and i remember being like you guys have brown hair this is amazing are you guys muslim or middle eastern anything italian does that like being muslim like what is it you know you just wanted something. so you were just really reaching right reaching anybody. Just give me something. <laughs> yeah. Same
0: here. I didn't really have many that I could look to in media either. Um, so if I wasn't watching programs imported from Hong Kong, I had like Michelle Yeo, Margaret Cho, um, and like newscasters, Katie Tong and Connie Chung. Connie
1: Chung. I mean, That was it, was it though. though.
0: So I guess this is sort of a, a broad question. Has there been any change with representation then? So that's the first part of the question and representation now.
1: Yes, you know, with age comes wisdom, right? In a way, but I think we would be remiss not to acknowledge that there's been major changes that have happened in terms of representation, right? right? And that's come through our utilizing our financial strength in that way. I think as immigrants, as minorities, the stronger we've become economically. And the more willing we are to flex those muscles and the way that some of this power stuff has become decentralized in terms of being able to make your own content, I think that that's been a huge shift for us as a community, for Iranians specifically. You know, Iranians have had a really, really robust film and television kind of community for decades. You know, we come from a tradition of oral tradition and storytelling, which I think is part of our community. And I was lucky... Because I went back to Iran, so I was able, you know, up until the, the early 2Ks, or I should say, it until about 10 years ago, I, would, I was going to Iran quite regularly. Um, and I would go to theater and I would see television. I would come back here and I'd be like, gosh, it could be so different. Because when you see content created by you For you, you realize like, oh wait, like I didn't. There was no weird kind of stereotype through that whole thing. We just were as people. And I know I'm not the only one. I know so many of my, you know, counterparts in film and media and here in the United States that are Iranian kind of feel that same empowerment of like, well, let's just make it, you know, when it's just about us, it's not so abnormal. This is just part of who we are. It's never going to be enough because we're living in this climate right now that something has gone awry terribly in that process. But I think that, yeah, when you see it, you realize like, oh, I'm, I'm just part of it here. And I think what it does for you as a person is that I, for me anyways, it has stopped making me constantly question my place. You know, do I belong here? Do I belong there? Am I worthy? Do I deserve this or that? And I think that you, for me, I realize you know, these aren't questions I need to be asking myself because my answer is yes to all of it. Yes, I deserve it. Yes, I, I belong. Yes, I can to all this. stuff. The question is anybody who's challenging that notion, it's their problem. You know, and I right. can't help you on that journey because that is disempowering for me. If that makes sense is that I don't. It does.
0: it does. But I have to go back to say something that you said. Actually, you bring up a couple of different good points. For people who don't necessarily understand the importance of representation, help explain why representation is so important. And at what point did you stop asking, do I belong? Am I worthy?
1: It was very recent. Very recent. That's fair. (laughs) In the trajectory. Okay. I said with age comes wisdom, right? I used to look at my yearbook photos or pictures that I had with like my girlfriends at like the sixth grade or the seventh grade, eighth grade. And I was like... Where is everybody? You know, everybody was like blonde haired and blue eyed okay. and I'm like, I stand out. And, and also to be Iranian and Muslim and, and, you know, being so different in terms of the restrictions that we have culturally in my house. I wasn't allowed to spend the night at people's houses. I wasn't allowed to, you know, do a bunch of stuff. those kinds of things. You feel less and less like you belong. The only kind of corner for you is just the weirdo corner. Right. Which, again, is what brought me to punk rock and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it was like, it's not weird. It's just my culture. You have no point of reference. I'm either a hijacker to you or I am, you know, a dangerous Muslim. But that's it. That's all you got. You know, so when I tell you like, oh, we invented algebra or we have poetry and we have this. There's nothing there or that even, you know, as a as a woman or as a girl at the time, just even to be quantified as cute. The Alyssa Milano's and Leah Remedies, I was like, oh, they got brown hair and blue, you know, brown eyes. That Like, I got that. Like, can I be cute? You, you know, does that make me pretty? It's little things like that where you're like, does all of the skin tone fit us somewhere? It's so important for our self-worth because you're validated as being part of society. You know, I think when you don't see yourself... There's no place for you. If you lack that kind of drive or fight, how are you supposed to carve out a place for yourself? All the pictures on the TV, all the magazine images, all that stuff doesn't show you there. It's that wanting to exist and being validated that you're like, show me, show me me. To deny somebody that is to deny their presence. And that's where it's just fundamentally unkind and it's not inclusive. And there is space for everyone because if you sit around your family table you're going to see a million different people who have something that should be represented. And there is a place for that, an acknowledgement of it. It doesn't have to be the most front and center thing. I don't want to run in on every TV show and on everything, but it's a way of thinking that gives you space.
0: For you, when did that shift from feeling like you were underrepresented and maybe marginalized go towards empowerment?
1: When I saw the tide in the United States shifting so visibly as it has in the past three years what's created has always been there it's just that it's been given a platform an open platform and i think when i saw that shift i was like you know what one it feels like my life's work is going down the drain with the work that you know we've been doing through the make agency and what i've been doing as a person and, and these different communities that have come here and have built this country fundamentally yeah. it's not an exaggeration it's, it's a bottom line is it, this country is built on immigrants yes. and immigrant labor when that shift started i was like you know what this isn't me right. this isn't right. this isn't my fight at this one because i did what's expected of me it, it's my problem because you're making it my problem fundamentally you need a mirror and you being the proverbial you is that you need a mirror and you need to do some real introspective talk and what it puts the rest of us in is that we have to just defend ourselves against the violence that gets spewed at us all the time. Mm. That kind of divisiveness, that kind of, so part of it is I realized like my, it's about coming back to your humanity and that's all we have. And in my humanity, I don't, I'm not an Iranian human. I'm not a Muslim human. I'm just a human being just like you or anybody else. And I think if I can just hold on to that kind of thinking, then all of the kind of other points of like, Oh, I'm an Iranian Muslim American woman. That makes me maybe different than being a Chinese American Buddhist, you know, so so let's, they're there. I, I respect those different parts of me and they're inherent to who I am. I can't separate them. And because I can't separate them, I can't continue justifying them. It's just who I am. And there's a freedom in it. And I want to be free. That's the thing, right?
0: As a human being. We all embody a million different things. I know, I know that I've talked to a couple of other people and one person actually said it's exhausting and frustrating to constantly for us as quote unquote minorities to bear the burden of responsibility to educate others.
1: Yes. And one, I do it in my day to day life and two, I do it as a career. Yes. And so when can someone have a minute? When can you, when can you take a minute? How much more can I do? Right. you know do i keep shifting i'm happy to it doesn't mean i don't want to have the conversation i'm happy to have the conversation but i can't have the conversation if i first have to prove to you that i'm a human being that i'm worthy of i can't have that conversation of you first i, I can't start by first proving to you that i that i'm worthy of being treated Barely, and that I'm not like a crazy, you know, violent terrorist or whatever. That if that's all, you can't even put that aside for a second to see me as a human being. Where do I start the conversation?
0: I, God, I'm so sorry to even ask this, but like, do you feel like you still even have to do that to that degree to to have to debunk this ridiculous notion of you know being a terrorist? That's insane.
1: It's a, it's a tough place is is where do you start you see the way that they speak about middle eastern folks who was it that there was a senator who said in response to the the shooting the mass shooting in, in el paso he tweeted out like hey if you want if you want to have target practice and shooting practice go enlist go to afghanistan go to iraq and i'm like wow wow guys but you know that's that's the norm Is that, is that, that's the, but that's time and time again. So I'm like, so we're target practice. Is that how you see us? You know, where do you have that conversation when there's so many things that are happening like that? Where do you, where do you start?
0: It's so discouraging to hear that these ideas are still being held. Um, But you do work in public relations and that is a platform to help change the messaging. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you shifted into PR and how you came to create the Make Agency?
1: When I was working with the United Nations, they had assigned me uh, the task of dealing with a PR agency. Of, and it was an interesting experience for me. So I was like, oh, wait, you know, we're on this diplomacy and, and diplomacy can take years to get a result. But, you're, you know, you do this PR thing and you can get a couple of New York Times articles and suddenly people's opinions start to shift and you get the public thinking differently about this, that's remarkable. And it became quite appealing to me. So I got recruited from the UN to work for a PR agency uh, in New York, which I stayed at for about seven years. Um, I worked my way up to becoming vice president there. And it was an incredible experience for for many reasons, but also because it coincided with post 9-11 Work and so I ended up doing all the press uh, for Guantanamo Bay, a lot of post nine um, eleven, entire you know Arab stuff that was happening and our responses to it, because um, I was really lucky enough to have the Center for Constitutional Rights as as a client at this at this firm, and so it really was an incredible, incredible, painful time, but also a time in which I had, you know, I mean, I cannot emphasize enough the the opportunity of of being able to work with the nominable Michael Ratner, who is no longer with us, but just learning from some of the greatest minds in in human rights and and response to post 9-11. I was in my 20s and it was pretty hard. What do you do with that? You know, I was the only Muslim on staff. Um, I was the only Middle Eastern person on staff. People were talking about these people and I kept seeing them as like, uncles, you know, or cousins or brothers or just the faces alone was just a very different Experience. What it did is that it also had people from the community calling me, saying, "Hey, Mathis, you know, we have this going on, and we have that." And some of those calls, because I came from the punk rock and art scene, were like, "Hey, you know, we got a comedy show that's Arab American comedy, or oh, hey, we have this like art exhibit that's just um, Middle Eastern artists and stuff that we're doing." And in my free time, I was like, "I want to do that. I want to help you guys promote that because it helps balance out the horror of my nine to five job." That led me to. Starting my own company ultimately. I said, you know what? I'm getting a lot of joy out of doing this diversified approach of incorporating arts politics and culture in one that it doesn't always have to be politics that sometimes i can change the conversation by focusing on arts and culture and i can change the conversation about middle eastern people or black people or minor- other minorities about by focusing on the cultural and artistic contributions because everyone can kind of appreciate that it's like you can t- you can find a common space by laughter you can look at a beautiful piece of art and get to thinking about something or someone differently and there's a huge amount of power in that you know and so i started the make agency in 2007 the focus has been arts politics and culture we've been working diligently for you know the past 12 years, you know, highlighting the underdog, which is really my specialty. Two years ago now, I we formed a sister company called Polite Society. And Polite Society is a company that's focused on being polite. Our tagline is, there's always a reason to be polite. And we have cards and gifts and things that encourage people to just connect. And it was a bit of my response to feeling like your life's work is being challenged, you know, as it has been the past three years with these new laws and travel bans and things that have come up where you feel like you were making so much progress and only to find that maybe not.
0: So how are you using the arts to change that conversation?
1: I think arts, like film and cinema specifically, what we were talking about earlier, it really helps us see things differently. It helps us kind of put our guard down because we're waiting to be entertained. And somewhere in that entertainment, you may be able to see somebody differently. And you see some of our former clients like Maysoon Zaid, who I think has a show in production now for ABC and Dino Bedala, who's a regular on MSNBC um, and people who are really though at the forefront of using comedy specifically to kind of poke fun at ourselves and show, Hey, we're laughing at ourselves, but also saying, chill out. You. we're not like that. We're not all like that. And I think that has helped quite a lot. One of our other artists Shirin Nishat has been is is a you know, a blue chip incredible, groundbreaking artist, but really I think somebody who I look up to quite a bit because she's never swayed from her roots and of contributing to her community. And you see that her artwork, whether it's film or whether it's photography, is forever tied to who she is and where she comes from but also pushes that conversation forward and to say that as an artist I can still have this voice and I can use that voice in defense of those who cannot defend themselves and I think that those are some examples of ways in which art really changes us and I think those are those are opportunities where we really have seen where the power of arts and culture lies.
0: Now, I know you do an amazing humanitarian trip to Tijuana. Can you tell us a little bit about that and something you had said earlier about a sister company that you created called the Polite Society? I'd love to hear more about that and sort of what the background of that is.
1: Polite Society is, um, as I said, is the is the company that we have, and it's a sister company for, for the make agency, um, which is a PR firm, and Polite Society is a gift company. Both get, have are founded on this premise that we're going to give back to society and polite society, especially gives a portion of all the sales back to causes and issues that we care about, um, that we think can impact the world. And one of those things that has been weighing heavily on me are two, are two things. One is the travel ban that is, that has been in place since 2017, which has prevented me from seeing any of my family. I will spare you my tears, but I have lost my father who has been so impactful in my life, my uncle and stuff. And, 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 neither were able to see their families in the end because of this travel ban. I also, because of the sanctions against Iran, cannot offer material support to those inside Iran. So there is an earthquake, there is some catastrophic floods that are happening, and it is impossible to send money um, without there being a risk to you. So That's one. The second is that I live in Los Angeles at the moment, and I am two hours and 15 minutes away from the greatest border crisis to take place since World War II around the globe. And I see the news. I see this unrelenting, hateful rhetoric that is being spewed at the American public about the danger of immigrants Mm -hmm. and no commentary about what brings them there. What would possess you to take so much risk to come to the U S and it bothers me deeply because I'm an immigrant. I came to this country because I had to, and I've made the most of being here while being consistently reminded that perhaps I don't belong here and I can't go back to my own country and I can't help my own country in terms of the ways that I would like to, by sending food and medicine and clothing. But I live two and a half hours from Tijuana and I have the means through the make agency and through polite society to have the time and the expertise to do something. So I put a call out for uh, in early July, asking to, uh, letting people know that I was going to raise some. I was going to go down there myself, and I was going to buy some food and medicine. I have a friend who I've known for twenty something years, who is an incredible aid worker and lecturer at Yale University, and she's been donating her time for the past few years to be down in Tijuana and and helping for free in, in a medical clinic there. So. I tried to raise $1,000, and in three days, I raised uh, close to twenty.
0: That's awesome.
1: It was an incredible, incredible effort by this people I know and love and complete strangers. And so in early July, we went down there and we spent $8,000 of the money. It's, it was hard to do, but I saw things down there that I... It's just unacceptable, I Evelyn. Mean, there's no words for some of the conditions that people are living in, some of the lost hope that is down there, that it, there's just no amount of talking that can convey that um, unless people see it for themselves. So, so that's what we, I've been doing. I've been donating my time to go down there to, to disperse, to dispense this money, 100% of which every single cent of that money is going back to the people.
0: What sorts of things have you been able to give them through this effort?
1: So let's see, the first time uh, that we that we went down, we were able to purchase diapers, uh, sanitary napkins, vitamins. There's a huge amount of um, skin conditions that are down there. So things that you don't really want to be buying, but uh, lice combs, scabies, lotions, that sort of stuff, because the conditions they live in are, are so important. And these are babies. I'm talking about 16-month-old, 3-month-old children that because of where they're at, don't have a choice, and it's an extremely difficult thing to get rid of, um, those kinds of skin conditions, when you don't have access to clean water, clean sheets, clean living spaces. We bought a lot of formulas and food, and we were able to visit um, a particular center that housed about 160 people of all backgrounds, people who have been told that their chances of reunification with their families, I'm not saying that they're on that boat coming through, there's just someone waiting for them in the United States. They have family, most of them, they have a parent, and school, someone who was willing to take them in. And they're trying to be reunited with their families. And they're stuck in these centers. And so we went to bring them food. And one of the centers that we went to, we realized, um, because we didn't know the exact situation that we were getting into, that there was no food. There was about 100 children there. A few days after that, because that, that kind of imagery stays with you forever. But we were able, with that same donation money, to organize a food drop of taking a large amount of fruits and vegetables for those kids to, to have something.
0: So not only did you get them food, food, you got them nutritious food,
1: Natural, healthy food. That was important to us. So we hope to continue being able to do that. Are you going to be doing it again? We're going to go back this month uh, in about two weeks.
0: That's really incredible. If you had the opportunity to speak to people who are underrepresented, what would you say to
1: them? That we got to see each other. That if I'm Iranian and Muslim and living this experience, I have to see you And your background that I have to see that black lives matter, that I need to see that immigrants on the border that, you know, are trying to reunify with their families, that they matter and that I see them and that my experience and their experience is one experience. You know, it may the logistics of it may differ, but our struggle and hopes for freedom and to live peacefully are the same. And I think if we see that, if we can find that commonality between us and know that because we are the same and that your voice rising should be my voice rising, should be all of us, that there is a chain and powerful reaction to that, that the powers that be are trying to break. That time and again in history, they've tried to prevent that kind of unification because they know The strength that it can have. They know what happens when the people see each other as one and see each other as deserving.
0: It's so important to see one another. At the end of the day, we really are more alike than we are different. What do you celebrate about your heritage?
1: About my heritage? All of it. All of it. We're here, as are so many others, you know, we're here. And I celebrate every day of that. And we're passing it on.
0: That is beautiful. If people want to learn more about the Make Agency or the Polite Society, um, as well as your continuing efforts and trips down to Tijuana to help people at the border, where can people find you? And what are your social media handles?
1: So you can find us a few different ways. You can buy our products at sopolite.com. We're also on Amazon. You can also find us at the make agency, the makeagency.com, and you can follow our work um, and clients and projects there.
0: So here at Repin, we are doing a signature signing off where we ask our guests to introduce themselves and let us know what
1: you represent. My name is Mathis Keshevars, I'm the founder of the Make Agency and Polite Society, and I represent you, every part of you, and all the parts that people don't want you to see.
0: Great thanks to my guest, Maktis Keshavarets. Check out her PR firm, themakeagency.com. And also be sure to pick up some nice gifts at sopolite.com and know that you're making a positive contribution. Next time on Reppin', we have Tiffany Persons, a prominent LA casting director who's worked with clients like Adidas, Facebook, and more. And she's also the founder of this incredible organization in Sierra Leone called Shine On, where she is literally transforming lives. As always, thanks to Nelson Panero for being my technical director and musical composer. To Gracie Kong for always being a constant source of love. Reppin' is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Till next time, stand up and represent.
3: Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time, and if you're looking for a connection to something timeless, and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace, I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote, and now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration – I'll give myself a pat on the back for that – as well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please, join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin wherever you get your podcasts.